What do you know about that, man? As biologists, we, we catch ducks and we place bands on them. How do you swallow this gum, Don? I don't know if you swallow it. They say it stays in there for four years if you do. Really? That's what I heard. Alrighty. Let's see. How should we start this out, Lee? Water, water everywhere, not a drop to drink. <laughs> <laughs> we can do it that way. Now, water everywhere. Yeah, there is some flooding going on. I asked you a minute ago if you'd been doing anything fun outside, and you pretty much said you hadn't been able to because it's been so dang wet. Mm -hmm. And it has been. This is, uh, you were just pulling up some flood statistics for me a second ago. Mm -hmm. What are those again? Second worst floods? I believe this is the second worst since 97 on the Ohio. Probably the worst since 97 is yeah. what you mean. Yeah, yes. Yeah, and probably the third worst in the last century or so. Mm -hmm. Well, the 37 flood was spectacular compared to this one. My granddad lived where Jeff Boat is now, you know, on the Jefferson Ville side of the river from Louisville. I'm not familiar with it. But, oh, okay. Over you there where okay. the, the yeah, boat yeah, yeah, building yeah. place. Yeah. He lost everything. Hmm. The water was over his house. So if Jeff boats up high, the water went over his house and washed it away. I know sometimes when I'm over <clears> there or I'm just in downtown Louisville, I'm not sure where the high water marks are, but there are certain buildings or mm -hmm. poles that show you <clears> this <throat> is where the water was during the 37 flood. And looking at them, it's kind of ridiculous. No, it's, 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 it was like a watershed event and, you know, not to use a pun, but in my granddad's life. I mean, yeah. Everybody who lived through it spoke of it with, with you know, reverence and mm -hmm. fear for the rest of their lives. I can see it. Uh, my, my grandmother got out on one of the last buses out of town for the high highland of Nashville, Indiana, the Knobs. That's wild. And uh, pregnant with my dad. Oh, wow. And my granddad was on the WPA, and he stayed back and sandbagged. Sandbagged everything? Yeah, and he always took a lot of pride because if you go on the Jeffersonville side of the river there on the riverfront, there's a lot of creek stones and natural stones he put those in later with the wpa because the the flood scoured everything off that bank this flood i mean it's been bad for people on the river mm -hmm. i know there i've seen pictures eastern kentucky actually got hit before mm -hmm. the people on the ohio river did so about a week before i feel like eastern kentucky was blown out and i saw drone footage and stuff on the news the houses were underwater but when it hit downtown louisville of course there's a lot more people there so mm -hmm. it makes a lot more news but it looks pretty devastating mm -hmm. i mean i can imagine a lot of people's businesses and houses are underwater or really damaged so mm -hmm. a lot of people have had fun with it which is making the best of a bad situation i don't know if you saw the pictures of the guy catfish off his front porch <laughs> got caught a 50 pound blue Looked like a blue yeah yeah a big 50 pounder yeah. and of course the famous deer jumping off uh by the golf house yeah, that was wild that's where we had our seafood convention this year yeah so i was all, right there i was like i, I was just there I, I literally parked uh the kentucky field truck 20 yards from where that deer would have landed had the, had the water not been there oh i know i parked right down there too then my, my truck would be 10 feet underwater now wouldn't it that was yeah. that was amazing video though yeah so, whoever, i think he flipped the deer yeah i think it was, i think she flipped it, it was great i hope uh obviously this is a podcast so people can't see what we're talking about but i hope if they just get on facebook and type in deer galt house mm -hmm. it'll pull that video up and it's pretty amazing it, it's a uh, impressive it's <laughs> just lucky footage to get or unlucky but i don't know how, how that works out but like you said uh haven't really been able to do a whole lot outside because of the flooding mm -hmm. we did go on a squirrel hunt with the tv show the other day which was fun uh taylorsville lake was 30 something feet up Pretty much all the boat ramps were closed, but squirrel hunting from kayaks, we were literally kayaking into the woods. Mm -hmm. So it was completely different. It was really cool. And we had some luck. Killed uh, killed three squirrels. We went out with uh, Nathan and from Canoe, Kentucky, and his, mm -hmm. his 13-year-old son. All right. Had a lot of fun. Yeah, it was, it was a good time. Everybody Nathan's enjoyed good it. good people. You know Nathan pretty well? Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, he's a he's a good guy. Knows his stuff, and he he I've actually, used him as a source for several columns and several uh, articles in in the Kentucky Field. He actually uh, deer hunts that WMA there, so he was pretty familiar with it. We went up Timber Creek, which is a good little area if you're familiar with it. Mm-hmm. Parked off Channing Lane and went up that yeah. way. But anyway, it was cool. It was. Uh, I used to use the Channing Lane boat ramp a lot when I was growing up. It was closed, but we went to kayak. Obviously, you can gain access you can't get with a boat. So, and I'll tell you what, it was February 27th because it was the day before squirrel season went out. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got sunburned being out there on the kayak. So that was pretty awesome. Yeah, that's sunburn in February is always a good thing. I love it. I mean, yeah, it was it was great. I just love feeling that sun hit me for it. I've been I've been waiting for it for it seems like months now, mm-hmm. and I can't I can't wait to be sunburned again. I mean, it, it was super cold all during the Christmas time, all in January. I mean, we went weeks where the highs were in the teens mm-hmm. and low twenties, which I enjoyed then, for for coyote hunting reasons, which I do a lot of. I really enjoyed that, but you know, it's uh, it's that time of year now where I'm looking forward to it warming mm-hmm. up and. Well, now we got to wait for the creeks to go back yeah, down. And we got a little break from that. It hasn't quit raining. Yeah. That's wild. <laughs> yeah, I'm sitting on G ready for go. I'm telling you. I did, killing me. I did hit a farm pond the other night and did pretty good. I caught probably the second biggest bass I've caught in the last 10 years. I don't know how big it was. I could pull up pictures. What'd you catch it on? Uh, I was running a 7-inch Berkeley Powerbait motor oil color. And I caught it. We were, I was casting. I took, a, I took a, a girl with me that she loves fishing. We went out there, and um, I was just casting as close to the bank as I could, because and on the north side of the pond mm-hmm. too, because I was thinking water's still pretty chilly. These fish are probably going to be holding up in the shallows and mm-hmm. on that warmer bank. But I'll pull these pictures up and show you. But we had some luck. I only caught two fish, but they were both hogs. Happens a lot this time of year catching big fish in shallow water. I used to parallel a lot of farm pond or small lakes like that during late February, early March when it was up and muddy, with a square bill crankbait and did really well, or the old ribbon tail worm like you were throwing is. Yeah, you know, it still works. I was throwing, uh, like you said, a ribbon tail, a twirl tail. She threw a uh, basically a cinco style mm-hmm. stick worm, and I, I, the fish I caught. Here's a picture of it. It was so fat. Well, that's a nice one. Yeah, I think it probably goes six. Oh, I'd say that's a beauty. Yeah, and it was so fat. I don't know what it ate, but it ate something big. And then she caught that one, which probably go about five. It, it wasn't. As that's fat, a beauty. But, yeah. Yeah, but it was a, it was a good time, man. Well, you know, those big large mouse and those bodies will push those bluegill up against that bank and the and, and they orient themselves along shallow cover it's like you know if you're in a dark room you want you want an object nearby so you can have something to orient to oh i guess that makes sense and the largemouth will do that as well and then wait and ambush so so how, how does it work so when it's dark and muddy like that the fish will get up against mm-hmm. the and bank. oftentimes too the water that's that shallow is the warmest water in the pond yeah it should be this time of year and and back in the day they used to attack these with a technique called jigging that mm-hmm. Tim Farmer did on the Kentucky Field Show several years ago. How'd that work? I haven't and, seen that episode. And uh, back, it was more popular when our reservoirs were young, and there were a lot of stumps well, and trees right on the bank. So I take that back. So when you say jigging, obviously mm-hmm. I know jigging. They, they call it that, but it's not the jigging that you think. Yeah, because I'm just thinking about pulling a jig. Mm-hmm. Or, but they would take a stout cane pole, and some later on you could use a stout fiberglass rod, and you'd skull paddle up into the shallows so you wouldn't have a lot of... Uh, commotion mm-hmm. and you would just take a long stout pole with 50 pound black dacron line if you some people could still remember that old black dacron mm-hmm. line that's what i learned to cast a baycaster with and just jig it up and down take a big black jig or a giant wad of night crawlers and pelt on a big hook and just up and down right by that stump and you would catch monster females hmm. most time female monster bass that way that's pretty much what i want to catch there's a there's some Articles from back in the day on Lake Cumberland when it was young and there were tons of stumps. I wrote an article about it years ago. 
and there were tons of stumps and trees along the shoreline. Now wave action's taking care of that. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's some great pictures of people in Cumberland when there's still tons of trees along the bank and they're jigging and pulling out bass through the jigging technique. You don't catch anything but bass? Seems like you catch some catfish. Yeah, you way. may be able to stumble across that. Um, yeah. I've tried it with other rods, and I, I, I did okay, but it didn't do as good as, as guys back in the day. But you can... You can do it now. The way I've done it now is a friend of mine one time and I were fishing a tournament. Crumbling the water was 43 degrees and it was chocolate milk and up. We struggled. Finally, my buddy James pulls out a spinnerbait and he starts doing a very low pitch cast right beside these flooded trees with a big white double-bladed uh, Colorado blade spinnerbait and just letting it parallel right down the tree. And we caught big fish that way <laughs> after being blank. That's he caught a huge smallmouth, and uh, we we, we uh, popped a really nice largemouth that day, too, on a day that it was tough. That's a, I, haven't, I haven't tried that, but I might have to. Yeah, it's, oh. it's, it's a cool old-time technique. But. That makes sense. So the fish, you, like you said, that's basically why it works. They get up against cover because they want something this to orient. This time of year, yeah, yes. They want something to orientate themselves to, and then and when you ambush. pitch that in there, yeah, that's a, that's a that makes perfect sense. When it's high, muddy, late winter. Uh, female bass this time of year need to take on they need to take on nutrients yeah, they need to be spawning before long because those eggs and their bellies are developing yeah. so I'll tell you what I was talking to a buddy of mine Bobby the other day about this the flood and we were just kind of wondering what's this going to do to the wildlife mm-hmm. and um, well I guess the real question that, that spurred all this was how in the heck do the fish stay in the creeks I mean when the creeks are as blown out as they are it seems like you'd get washed away but mm-hmm. I guess they just kind of what do they do I mean, they'll go up under um, they'll go behind mm-hmm. Um, some of the fish will go, you know, the, the game fish often will, will stay in, but some of the fish can go up into the floodplain and they'll hang out. And yeah. then as the water recedes, they'll come out back with them. That's I funny. know it's a friend of mine used to, but loved it when the river got up like this, he'd go bow fishing mm-hmm. and, and nail carp that would go up shallow during flood. Oh, I'm sure the carp and the catfish move. If there's a flooded cornfield or something mm-hmm. like that. It might be a little bit too late in the year for that right now, but I'd say if there's flooded corn or grain or anything like that, I'd say a lot of fish probably get up there and move into it. You could see those carp. He'd, he'd have a great time with it. So, uh, But in the creek, I think, too, you know, some of our fisheries biologists may be more knowledgeable than me along these lines. But I do know they use current breaks and stuff to stay in. Yeah. And then lower hill corn during some of the floods, they'll get blown out in the river and they just come back in. Yeah, just wait for it to pass. Mm-hmm. So another question that we were wondering about is, will this big flood allow bigger fish to make their way further upstream into the creeks? Well, I'm sure it can, you know. You know, it seems like bigger water would allow bigger fish to move a little bit further out from the rivers mm-hmm. or the bigger pools by the rivers. And I just didn't know if this event, maybe when the flood water started to go down and that water was still, you know, pretty deep, if mm-hmm. it would, maybe you'd find bigger fish upstream. I think that's plausible. Yeah. I'm not going to, I'll go out there and test it this mm-hmm. spring. Maybe we should both go out there and well, test it out. We can leave in an hour. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that's awesome. <laughs> but I, I, mean, I still down. think it's, it's pretty high right now. Yeah, for sure. I'd be down to go try it out, though, if we could. But, I mean, I am dying to go fishing lately. Oh, it's killing me. It's something I can't wait for. Uh, you know, like you fish these creeks and stuff, and, and you find pockets that you really like or, you know, fallen trees and things like that that you like to fish. And then after after the fall passes and you take a few months off and maybe we get a big flood like this, the terrain of the creek will completely change. Mm-hmm. I'll, be, I'll go out there this spring, and there will be – you know, trees and places there weren't before. It seems like sometimes if a big tree gets taken out of the bank or something like that, it can create an eddy or a, or a backwash area. So there's going to be whole new features to fish this spring. Oh, and, and, and that's all part of the natural process. Yeah. What I've noticed, too, is some areas in Elkhorn, there's a place that we call Catfish Hole. Where's that? It was near the hatchery. Okay. Our hatchery. Oh, wait. I, and it was kind of a side shoot that was always a little bit stagnant, but always when they shocked it, it would be full of catfish, and I've caught catfish. It's funny it. that you say that. So I'm Now to, it's gotten flow to it, and it's more yeah. smallmouth because the floods have blown that 
I'm going to tell you side shootout. real quick story. So last year I walked down to go snorkeling in the Elkhorn with one of my buddies. And we, I parked at the hatchery and I walked back and I went to that public spot. And I'm assuming this is where you're talking about because mm-hmm. the, the, the creek splits right mm-hmm. before the hatchery. Yep. And that left split, if you're going downstream, so the one on the opposite side of the hatchery. Yep. There's a hole about 50 yards after the split. Mm-hmm. And there's this big stump and a big rock section out in the middle of it. Yep. Is that the spot? Yep. So I went down there and I snorkeled that spot and there were catfish everywhere. Yeah. I mean, they weren't big catfish. They were little channels and stuff like that. But I mean, I was down there and the water was clear because it was, it was low in the summer. And these fish, when you're down there on the bottom with them, you can literally just about touch them, reach out and touch them. And I, I mean, it seemed like there was probably 20 or 30 catfish just held up against this rock shelf. And it was one of the coolest things I saw last year while we were snorkeling. Hence the catfish hole. So that's the spot. That is. <laughs> that's awesome. But, but now it's not as catfish as it used to be because, of, you know, when you're looking upstream, the left side has good flow. The right side uh, is where the what we call the catfish hole. And there's an island all the way through there. And mm-hmm. there's a breach in that island. And that front part of that island over time is starting to melt away. Huh. And that used to yeah. keep some of the current there. So it was more more backwatery than it used to be. Yeah, now you're getting more flow through there and you catch smallmouths on top of it, but it's still catfish. Really good undercut banks through there. Yeah, I was fly fishing that day. I took my fly rod, took my snorkel gear, and I caught a smallmouth off the front side of that island. And mm-hmm. then after I caught one or two smallmouth, I said, all right, let's go swimming. Started swimming and saw that. And I also found, my buddy Bobby found a, a fresh tackle box that somebody, I guess, had lost in the creek mm-hmm. the, the following week, flipped their kayak or something like that. Mm-hmm. Not a rusted hook, not a piece of rust in it. It looked like it had been in the water for a couple of hours. But, I mean, it was probably $100 worth of bait in there somebody lost. Rapalos and all kinds of stuff. So, what color was it? <laughs> I was down there about an hour before you all. <laughs> somebody, hey, man, well, somebody got unlucky and we got really lucky. So That happens. I mean, I've found a lot of rods and stuff in the creek. You, you can find some treasures. I find rods in the trees above riffles. Mm-hmm. Like, people are busting through in their kayak and they have the rod hanging off the front or the back or something like that. And it gets caught in a branch and they just keep getting pushed on through. Well, you know those uh, rod holders in kayaks where you shove the handle in, they stick straight up? Uh-huh. I find them. I never use them for that reason. Uh-huh. Now, if I'm if I'm in a lake and I know it's wide open, yeah, flat water, then, then, I'll, then I'll use those. But other, I use the camera. I can fold them down because I've looked back when I oh, <laughs> and had to yeah save my really nice rod from yeah. being hung in a tree, and then you an hour later you're like, where's my second rod? Oh gosh. Oh, oh no. Yeah, so I, I've been looking for new rods for the creeks this year. I know you like St. Croix, don't mm-hmm. you? Yes. Is that how you pronounce it? Yes. St. Croix. And, and I, a lot of mine I've built. With their blanks. Okay, okay. And um, I've also used uh, some blanks that Cabela's offered for a while. I think they were made by Pacific Bay. And, and those are fine rods. The, the graphite is so good anymore. There, there's not really any bad ones compared to the way it was 30 years ago. Yeah. You can tell I have the one G. Loomis, and I love it. I have but, one G. Loomis as well. And I tell you, I had to buy it on accident because hmm. I broke somebody else's. And so I, I broke the rod. I, I borrowed it, and I was uh, downrigging for catfish in the river. Mm-hmm. And I got caught on something, and somehow I broke that rod. Right, and I felt bad about it, so I replaced the rod for them. I went and bought a new one, and then I gave it to them, and they said uh, I had a lifetime warranty, fifty dollar replacement. So, and I was like, "Well, I've just bought this three hundred fifty dollar fishing rod. I think I might keep it, and you can get your replacement." <laughs> oh, well. They're nice, though. They I, are. I tell you what, something that just popped in my mind, Lee, and this is completely off subject and off topic. Last time we did our first podcast, mm-hmm. I told a story about the first time I went bow hunting. Right, mm-hmm. or the first time I went hunting, mm-hmm. I have to correct myself. Uh, my uncle took me hunting the year before he took me and my brother and I, he called me and he said he listened to the podcast and he didn't give me any kind of heck for it. But at the same time, after he called me and told me he listened, I thought, you know what? I misspoke. I got to give credit where credit's due. So he took me and my brother out there deer hunting, uh, during youth season and we were sitting against that tree and I guess some does were walking towards us and I had a rifle. My brother, he was just there to hang out. 
And my brother, he, he says, Chase, there's a deer. He yells it and he points it out. And of course, the deer takes off running. And I remember I acted all ticked off. Like, oh, you scared of the deer? I never saw that deer before he yelled it out. But mm -hmm. So I had to give credit where credit's due and correct my mistake. Wasn't the first time I'd been hunting. It was the first time I'd been bow hunting. First mm -hmm. time I was successful. But my uncle, somebody in my family had taken me out before. So it was fun. Had to correct that mistake. Well, I'm sure he'll forgive you. Oh, yeah. Well, he didn't even say a word about it. So I don't think he was upset. But like I said, I just want to go ahead and give yeah, credit yeah, where credit's due. Yeah, I've been there and done that. Yeah. And maybe in the back of his mind, he might have thought something about it. But he didn't bring it to the forefront. Oh, well. But I, I do like those. Uh, the main thing with a creek rod, real quick. Yeah. Um, I've built, you know, several dozen rods now, and just don't get too powerful. Don't get too wimpy a rod. Mm -hmm. Don't get too powerful one either if you're going to catch mainly stream smallmouths, because a lot of people will take their lake bass fishing gear, put a little bit lighter line on it, and then you know that's no fun. You want to have some sport. Now you don't want a buggy whip that you would pan fish with, mm -hmm. but you don't want light to medium light is really, but a light power rod is really good yeah i think i i go anywhere between oh, i mean i like an ultralight mm -hmm. but that's not if i'm like really going out and trying to catch some fish mm -hmm. that's if i'm going out and trying to have some, a little bit of fun now, i've got one ultralight that's a stiff ultralight it's only five foot but it might be my favorite rod of all time you, go out, you can catch rock bass or crappie or anything with that ultralight like 14 inch smallmouth is like you know you've, you've hooked into ahab oh yeah that's a lot of fun if i but you know honestly i say i, I take that ultralight out there to do stuff like that but these days i take my fly rod Mm -hmm. If I'm not like going for a, a monster creek smally, I'm just going out to try to have a little bit of fun. I'll take my fly rod out there and, and fish those riffles. And that's that's probably how I go out there now and do it. I don't fish my ultralight quite as much as I should or I used to. Well, you know, speaking of that, over the weekend, I got my fly rods out, which I <clears throat> don't use nearly enough as I should. And um, uh, one belonged to my dad, and it's been sitting in the closet for years. I haven't fooled with it. And he's kind of hinted over Christmas, hey, I'd like to use that again. And I said, okay, I'll get it set up. And I put the backing on it, and it had the original line. And then I started looking into it. I was like, hmm, this line is older than a lot of people. <laughs> the, the float line? No, yeah, the, 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 the fly line itself. The yeah. backing was fine. I put some back new backing on it, and, and uh, so I'm, I've kind of got the fever a little bit too. I'll take my, uh, my fly rod to a farm pond. Last year, I tried to catch some carp on it, which would have been fun. I would throw a – sometimes I fish my fly rod, my fly gear, unlike a fly fishing setup. So, mm -hmm. I mean, I will literally throw a wad of corn on a hook and mm -hmm. put it on my fly because I'd like to catch a 30-pound carp on a fly rod, you know, mm -hmm. and something like that. But I'll take it to uh, the farm ponds where I like to bass fish. You know, this time of year, it's probably the only place you could go with how blown out everything is. And I'll, I'll, I'll try to catch a five-pound largemouth on it. I think that would be a blast, but only if I'm feeling confident. We used to just take monofilament off the loop, <laughs> yeah. tie it to the fly line, uh, put four pound in a hook, and and catch bluegill on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just fun. But, I mean, it was those old Martin automatic reels. I mean, they weren't expensive outfits, but I had a lot of fun on them. Mine's not expensive. I only have one fly rod, one fly reel, and I don't. It's a Reddington. Mm -hmm. It's one of their package deals. It probably cost me about one hundred twenty bucks, and it gets the job done. Though. I mean, you know, a lot of those things are relative. Like we were talking about. G Loomis, some of their, you know, and some of these higher end rods are, are you know, five and six hundred dollars. Yeah. Are they five times better than your hundred dollar rod? Yeah. I've often wondered. No, but there is a monumental difference between the low end, medium, and the the bottom of the high grade stuff. Like mm -hmm. the, the cheaper Saint Croix is much better than. Oh, you're talking about uh, the difference in a twenty yeah. or thirty dollar fishing rod and a one hundred dollar fishing rod. Exactly. Yeah. Now that's monumental. Yeah, I, I agree with that. But. I've often wondered, 
is the difference between a $125 rod and a $500 rod. It's not nearly the, the kinda, step up. You know? I got to feel like I completely agree with that. I uh, At some point in my life, I made the step up from $20 or $30 fishing rods, you know, buying the ugly sticks. But I still like the ugly sticks for something. I've things. got one of my, my striper rods. Yeah, yeah I mean, because you, I mean. Ugly stick catfish. So, so beat tough. a horse with it. That's what I'm saying. They're the toughest rods. But when I stepped up and I spent, you know, 100 bucks on my first nice fishing rod, I mean, that thing lasted me years, and I had no complaints with it. And it's like you could, I mean, you could feel better, set the hook better. I'm not sure. I'm yeah. not sure why. But it just, it seemed like a better rod. Yeah, there is a huge difference between that. But but I just wonder if it's a matter of degree when you get into the higher end stuff. Yeah, well, as long as, and that one even came as a lifetime warranty. I broke it, uh, Cardor, probably the the downfall of most fishing rods. Oh, yeah. Or that or a trolling motor. I know some people. Automatic have, window, ate one of my favorites that I built out of the Sequoia <laughs> blank. It was an avid blank, and it was my I didn't have it that long, and we were heading to New uh, River, mm -hmm. and I was all excited. West and, Virginia, New yes, River? Yeah, and uh, we had the rods kind of stacked, and, and my, my good buddy John was driving, and he accidentally hit the all windows down on his. Right. I think he had a Pathfinder. So a big gust of wind came in, blew some of the tips out the window, then he hit the automatic up the window. Oh, man. Snapperoonie. <laughs> but I pillaged the guides off that because I built that rod. I pillaged the guides off that, built my little favorite creek rod now and upgraded it a couple of years ago. So it wasn't all for waste. It's cool when you build it yourself. But I went with a guide. I was like, I have no rod beefy enough. And he turned me on to, to the G. Loomis rod that I now own, the exact same model. And I was like, God, I love this rod. So Spinning rod? Yeah, spinning rod. I think it was called the SP. 811. It's a six foot nine light power, and I was throwing heavy soft plastic jerk baits like a sluggo. But he had them built by a guy in front of his port, and he put a bunch of extra salt in them to get weight. Uh -huh. And man, I caught that. It was a tough day. The day before, it was 80 degrees. That day, we could see our breath at lunch, uh -huh. and it was 40 ish, yeah. low 40s. It would, got progressively colder as the day went, the fish were fussy. Huh. And the, the only decent fish I caught that day was was on that presentation, and I came home and actually I won a bet at the horse track, <laughs> and I uh, cashed that out and bought that rod. <laughs> <laughs> but it to good use at least. Yeah, and, and I've had a lot of fun with it ever since. So. That's funny. Uh, not that I advocate trying to gamble in order to win your uh, uh, equipment, but uh, if you get lucky, you, get yeah, lucky. you know, if you get lucky, you put it to good use. Don't give it back to them. Yeah, you could definitely do something worse with that money. No doubt. So uh, something else, you know, this flood, it's got me thinking about the wildlife. That's kind of how we got onto the topic of what we were just talking about. Mm -hmm. So last year, EHD hit, right? Mm -hmm. And I need to bring, we we both need to bring Gabe in here and talk to Gabe because I think doing, he's one of the people that I have on my list of guests we need to bring on pretty soon, mm -hmm. doing a wrap up from the last year season because there's a lot that went on mm -hmm. with, uh, with EHD, kind of talking to him about the impact of that and what to expect and also kind of forecasting this year's deer season, mm -hmm. I think would be a good idea. But uh, one of the reasons for the EHD outbreak last year had to do with the fact that we had a lot of rain early mm -hmm. and then not much rain after that. And so it opened up a lot of mud banks on the creeks and rivers. <clears throat> and that's where those uh, midges that carry EHD or the transmit EHD, that's where they they breed at, I guess. I, I'm not sure if that's the right word for it. Breeding? Is that what? Yeah. So that's, that's how we got so much EHD is because there were so many more mud banks on the creeks and rivers. I don't know if that'd be something to worry about this year, but we had a really hard frost, really hard freezes this year, so I thought that'd probably kill you know, off a lot of them. In my limited knowledge, yeah, um, I was surprised we had an outbreak because normally my understanding was EHD was associated with drought, mm -hmm. and again those exposed mud banks, but yeah. that was from you know low water conditions for a long time, and and, and drought conditions when you'd have these outbreaks. Yeah. So 
I think I, we, I don't remember droughty time much last year. Seems like it was, it was a fairly wet year. I think we got a lot of rain earlier, and then we went a while mm-hmm. in a small small drought. And then we probably got more rain, but something to do well, with I those floated a lot last fall, and I don't remember it being. It was early, you know, early in the years. Probably mm-hmm. uh, we'll have to get Gabe Cage on here because Gabe, I keep saying his name wrong. We'll have to get him on here because I don't want to misspeak, mm-hmm. and he he'll know all the details. But I'm almost positive on one of our uh, videos we did with him. He was talking about how. It was the, the the heavy amount of rain we got early and then a dry spell afterwards that opened up those banks and allowed those midges to breed. Mm-hmm. So I was just wondering, you know, I, it seems like with the hard freezes, because I was thinking, man, all this, the ground was frozen so hard and so thick this year. Everything was frozen when we had those really hard spells of, mm-hmm. of long stretches of cold weather. I was thinking that's probably going to work wonders for the deer and the mm-hmm. mosquitoes and just, you know. Oh, I'm excited about that. I'm glad. Yeah, it will. And I think it's going to help people's allergies and mm-hmm. You know, we haven't had a hard, cold winter like this. And I mean, we've had spells of it, but that long and that consistent yeah. of cold weather. I'm I'm excited. I think it'll help the fishing this year, too. We went out and we went ice fishing this year. And uh, the guys we went with, they're people who ice fish pretty much every time they get a chance. And they said it's been four or five years since they got a chance here in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, obviously, it was a abnormally hard winter as far as that goes and like you said we had temperatures down the, the highs were in the teens sometimes the highs were in the single digits and that lasted for a week and a half or two weeks it seemed like mm-hmm. that's i know a, that's a hard freeze yeah and when it started thawing out where we were we were dove hunting on one of the last weekends of dove season that's when it was starting to thaw out a little bit mm-hmm. and you'd be walking in the first four or five inches of the ground were just slop and muddy where it thawed out and then hard as a brick yeah hard as a brick where it's still frozen mm-hmm. deep so i mean that tells you it froze eight nine ten i don't know how deep it froze but it froze way down there it did that's a heck of a freeze and you know i've, I've written about it before and, and this may help fishing because uh the the, the bait fish during that time when you have a really cold winter like that especially in some of our reservoirs like Cumberland where you have threadfin shad um, it, it can put a hurt on them yeah. and th- you know that'll increase competition which means fish are going to be more aggressive oh and that's and, that's and kind, of, kind of the floating fly works so well this year like mm-hmm. you were talking about earlier yeah, because yeah. of that very aspect that's what we talked about last time and Brizendine even said you know this is probably the best winter you could possibly ask for and that's because those thread fins and all the, the all the shad and bait fish were, were stressed and dying like mm-hmm. you said so I guess that will create more competition for food which means they should be more willing to bite my bait. Exactly. That's what I'm hoping for. When I'm swimming that jig by you, I want you to remember that. And, yeah. and, and uh, pay homage by biting. So, <laughs> so let's say the water does clear up and, and does go down a little bit. If you were going to suggest going out on one of the reservoirs, how would you fish it? Well, it, it depends. Right. Um, the I think the toughest fishing situation is when there's a hard, hard, pull down of the lake and they're drawing the water yeah really that's hard. what's going to be happening for the next couple of weeks it's, it may be tough if if the lake is i would choose a lake that's stable and if the if the if it's up in the trees fine take that spinner bait uh try to present uh, lures right by that cover that's flooded um but if they're drawing the lake hard just you know there's a lot of resources online where you can see the the louisville daily lake report something i consult a lot and it's the louisville district of the army corps of engineers it'll tell you how much they're drawing how much is going out every morning at 6 a.m uh, so which, you, which lake all the lakes all like green the, the ones in that district green river rough barren um so if, if if you see a high release in terms of cubic feet per second you know that the lake is being drawn hard um the lakes that are in the tennessee valley authority and are under the auspices of it. You, you can look like Barkley, Kentucky. You can see the, the release schedule on those, and as well as Dale, Laurel, Cumberland. Mm-hmm. You can see by doing a little rudimentary amount of internet research how much they're they're drawing the lake down. Mm-hmm. If they're they're pulling it hard, 
find a lake that they're not because uh, you know you can catch them when they're pulling the lake hard but man it just pulls everything off and they just go into a neutral mode until things stabilize when, the, when they're really drawing the lake down i think that's falling water i think on a creek or a reservoir falling water is the toughest fishing situation in, in my experience you're on stable Stable or rising is best. Rising. So what about the tailwaters below one of those lakes? It might well, be blown out a little bit up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've been checking Lake or Cumberland River a lot, and it's they've been. I mean, twenty four hours. Uh, they've been they've been drawing it pretty hard. Yeah, I'd say Cumberland will probably be for quite a while. It's going to be. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm trying to get. We're working on an article on trout, and we hope to get down and do some of that wonderful fishing that you can have this time of year. But when <laughs> when it's really really raging like that, it's just. Well, they use the lakes. It's not good. Kind of it's a, dangerous as well. Well, they use the lakes, uh, Kentucky, Cumberland, I'd say all the main lakes. They use them as a reservoir, which mm-hmm. is exactly what they did. They did it for flood control because if all that rain we got would have gone through the river at once, it would have blown everything downstream out. No doubt. So they emptied, <clears throat> the way I understand it, they kind of drained the lakes out a little bit before we got that rain. They kind of pulled them mm-hmm. before the rain so they could hold extra water. Exactly. So then they held all that back. So my guess is that they probably got quite a bit more water to release that right now. Exactly. They do. So they'll be pulling for a while. They've been holding green a little bit, you know, Green River and some of them have been holding back to allow some of that to recede a little yeah. bit before they, they release more. I saw a cool video the other day. Somebody had taken out on a boat uh, of one of the buoys in the lake. Like, I don't know if it's a no wake or no swimming buoy, but it was leaning and being pulled towards the dam mm-hmm. because of how hard they were pulling water. Yeah. I think that was probably on Kentucky. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Now, in the summer when it's warm, if, if you have some generation on Kentucky, that can actually turn the fish on. But um in in most situations when when falling water is is just tough yeah i mean on i've been on many a trip where you know we've had it planned for months and we're going to go float and we're going to camp we're going to have a great time and then it gets really high and it's falling hard the whole time we're camping and doing our floats and we usually struggle Hmm. but if it's stable i'd rather have it low and clear than high and falling anytime but if it's stable and just starting to rise. Now, that can be glory time. Well, I'll be looking for it. I might check those websites. I had not been on. Usually, I get on USGS just mm-hmm. checking the creeks. And, and you can do it that way as well. Yeah. But, but that doesn't give you as good a, 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 an idea of what they're releasing from the from the, red, the dam be, itself. Well, I'll be waiting for it to happen. Well, I'm, I'm like level three uh, cabin fever. Pretty much. I mean, yeah. I'm about to hit code red cabin fever. <laughs> I'll be waiting. You might for, see me walking down the street going, blah, 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 carrying a fishing rod and like fishing in Walmart hey, parking lot. Find you a farm pond. Mm-hmm. It could still work. But I'll, be, I'll be waiting for that to happen i'll be waiting for turkey season because that's pretty much what i have to look forward to outside right now doing some creek fishing doing some because i mean february 28th was yesterday so most of the seasons have went out mm-hmm. you know squirrels out trappings out i can bobcats out. Time. yes yeah oh i can still coyote hunt but i need some better weather because obviously this rain doesn't help me out with that at all especially this wind. what does wind do for this coyote hunting mm-hmm. i don't like it i, I mean a, a little bit of wind's windy, okay though. like if i see a wind over 10 miles an hour i'm less likely to go and you got to think how far it carries your scent. So if they do circle yeah, down winds, right. yeah. yeah, and uh, it just makes your call not travel as well. It can travel in directions you don't really want it to. So a calm, not necessarily a calm day, but a light wind is probably your best best chances for coyote hunting. And tomorrow morning, we're supposed to have some pretty good temperatures for it, but I think the wind's going to be howling up there about 15 to, I think it might get up into the 20 mile an hour range tomorrow. That makes fishing tough it as makes, well. It makes walking around outside tough mm-hmm. when you're, yeah, just ridiculous. So I don't know. Turkey season's right around the corner though. I was talking to uh, Rachel Kroom. Slato opened today. It was the mm-hmm. first opening, of course, or the grand opening of Slato for this year. And we were up there, and I was talking to Rachel Kroom, and she was talking about 
some new turkey loads she had been looking at, which was, sounds pretty boring. But honestly, the way she was describing it to me, it was, it was pretty interesting. She said there's this new tungsten shot that you can take a turkey out to 80 yards with, mm-hmm. something like that. And uh, it's it's much more dense than lead. And she was telling me. Although that, a lot of people would say that's borderline, you know. Yeah. On the ethics of it, you know. Yeah. And apparently all this stuff is made in China. And uh, she said she didn't know why, but that tungsten has one of the highest melting points of any metal. It's like 2,800 degrees. And I, I don't know if these are facts. I'm just kind of saying what our conversation led to. Mm-hmm. And that they probably can't make it in the U.S. for some environmental reasons, you know, to be able to heat it up. And I have no idea what I'm talking about. But I'm just saying this conversation I had with Rachel earlier was pretty cool about this shot. And it cost over 10 bucks a shell. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's usually, they have those uh, waterfowl loads as well. But, yeah. you know, they're anywhere from 250 to $5 a trigger pull. Yeah, and on the turkey loads, it was even more. But so, she said that... When you shoot as poorly as I do, that goes ching, ching, yeah. ching pretty quickly. Well, she, she said she picked up... <laughs> She said she picked up 20 shells, four boxes of five shells for somebody the other day, and it was $207. Ooh. Yeah. I think I'll just stay with my copper plate instead yeah, of exactly. that I have paid for. So anyway, I was talking to her about turkey hunting, and she was telling me about uh, how you, apparently you can get two extra birds on Fort Knox in addition to your state birds. So you can, you can tag out with your statewide license and then go to Fort Knox and potentially get two more. But uh, it's actually their season opens a week before ours, so I guess you could do it the opposite way around. But anyway, so I was talking to her about all this stuff, and it made me really want to go turkey hunting. Mm-hmm. And we're having uh, our live call-in show. It's going to be our next show with the TV, with the television show, mm-hmm. is, our, is our turkey hunting call-in show. Harold Knight's coming on as a guest, and I'm going to try to get him on the podcast. Even if it's only for ten or fifteen minutes, you know, if I could, that'd be I, fantastic. If I get an opportunity, to sit he's down. the guru. Yeah, but you know, it's going to be kind of different. I don't really want to talk to him about turkey hunting, if that makes any sense at all, because see, so many people have talked to him about turkey hunting, and all these articles and all this information is out there. I just kind of want to talk to him as a person. You know, mm-hmm. I kind of want to pick his brain about other stuff. Obviously, I'd like to know where he hunted in Kentucky because he's done a lot of turkey hunting around here, and kind of just maybe get him to tell me a story or two about what hunting was Kentucky. once called the Kentucky Woodlands. Refuge. Uh-huh. We now call it LBL. Oh, yeah. I believe that's where both those guys cut their teeth. Well, it would be nice to get some information, like maybe a landmark or something, so people out there might be able to say, oh, this is where Harold Knight hunted before. Mm-hmm. Harold Knight took it. So I'd just like to pick his brain. Well, you know, they're, they're right there on Old 68. Now they're they're redoing the road through there. You, uh-huh. you go by their old factory to this day, but they're, they're not yeah. making stuff there anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, when I was coming of age, um, a turkey was still a rare thing, but I yeah. grew up in Bardstown, and one of the, the places we had turkeys was Bernheim Forest, yeah. and now the adjacent Nod State Forest, and you could see them. I was squirrel hunting one day uh, my junior year or so, and the first encounter I ever had with a turkey was I walked under one, and it flushed, and it scared the living fire out of me. <laughs> I threw my gun down and hit the fetal position. Oh, and my brother and you my buddy was with age. me, and uh, yeah, I never heard the end of that one. Oh, I, I, but that turkey absolutely scared the fire out of me. Well, if you aren't used to them, so when did the when did the turkey restoration take place? Do you know when it ended? Well, it, um, you know that would be a question for someone else exactly when it ended. But I mean, it's been go. It's still, in my opinion, ongoing. So but they stopped stocking turkeys somewhere in the nineties. Yes, yeah, uh, it's been to, a long time. Since I want to say like ninety one. That's a rough guess. But, I could uh, probably. Steve Doby told me a couple of years ago that that we're kind of have reached. We've about filled up. Oh, so turkeys? we're going to have fluctuations yearly and. Based on bulk production, yeah, the the previous years and whatnot. 
You can, um, you can look online at the harvest results, <clears throat> excuse me, the harvest results, and you can see some fluctuation in mm -hmm. the numbers. I mean, usually I want to say our turkey. That'd be a good question for Zach Danks. Yeah, well, I want to have Zach on. Our turkey our turkey harvests are usually between like 28 and 35,000 or something like that. And uh, on those really high years, the peaks, it's kind of interesting because you can ask why. And there's always a reason that has to do with the spring before or the mm -hmm. winter before because, I mean, I guess the turkey. But I think we're pretty much at carrying capacity. I think we filled pretty yeah. much filled everything up. That's awesome. I'm gonna I'm gonna look up when that restoration but, stopped taking but place. But when I was younger, um, one of the places people actually could still harvest a turkey was uh, Land Between the Lakes. What was that? Why do you think <clears throat> Bernheim and Land Between the Lakes had more turkeys? Well, Bernheim I think was one of the original stocking places in, in the restoration. Mm -hmm. And the the property that we were hunting on, a friend of mine's family owned. It was actually a Revolutionary War grant and had never been logged and had. I mean, it was like a just a, something you walked back 200 years. It was, a, I mean, gigantic trees in this property. It was fabulous. And it backed up, the back end of that property backed up to what is, I think, Knob State Forest. And there were turkey everywhere. And that was my first encounter with one that scared me so bad, I dropped my twenty two and hit the fetal position. <laughs> so, so, so I thought I was getting attacked by a bear. I didn't know. I was 17. So this, this right here, this says that uh, our turkey restoration took place over a 20-year 20 20 period starting in 75. Yeah. So I'd put it at mid- In 70, if, if memory serves correctly, in 1978, we telechecked 44, 44 birds were harvested. That's it? 44? Yes. Wow. Wow. And that's that's been used in our literature some, if, if that is, if memory serves correctly, which in this instance, I believe that it does. So it went from 44 birds to uh, 35,000 yeah. birds. Pretty good increase. Oh, I'd say so. I don't even know what the percentages on that are, mm -hmm. uh, to the thousands. But, but back then in that time, though, in the late 70s when I was a kid, uh, in the early 80s, I mean, the, the places you heard of anybody taking one was LBL and, yeah. <clears throat> and in, in really remote parts of the Daniel Boone National Forest. Hmm. See, for somebody like me who's born in 89, you know, I'd say a lot of people older than me probably don't remember there not being turkeys. Like people I hear from, I'm, I, I want to say old timers, but I'm not going to insult you like that, about uh, there not being deer, there not being turkeys, you know, and uh, that's stuff my parents tell me about. You know, you didn't see deer, you didn't see turkey. And now I just, I think I take it for granted. A lot of people take it for granted, at least I know about the restoration mm -hmm. that happened. So I kind of understand I mean, it. George Wright and, and was good friends with, with uh, both Knight and Hale. Uh -huh. And um, um, he was he was the guy who really spearheaded that. He died he died at a relatively young age. So he spearheaded kind of the restoration. Yeah, he, of was, he was the guy. Well, George was a, he was a one of a kind. I, I, everybody in the department thought very highly of George. Well, maybe I'll have to if I am lucky enough to sit down with Harold and ask him a few questions because mm -hmm. if I do, I'll do it before the live call-in show. Mm -hmm. So I'll just maybe steal him for half an hour before we go live with the TV show, and hopefully be able to pick his brain a little bit because I got a feeling after the show, everybody's going to be wanting to go ahead and get home. It'll be nine nine thirty when it's over, so it'll be a little late then. But I might have to get that info from you. Maybe get that name and, and come up with a question or two. Cool. To ask him about the because he probably knows a lot about the turkey restoration. Oh. I know if I was making game calls mm -hmm. uh, for, for a certain type of hunting, and that hunting had the potential to explode. I uh, think uh, he used to use a diaphragm call with, um, with uh, from a prescription pill bottle huh. and some latex. See, that's interesting stuff. I'd like to I'd like to know about that. I think everybody who talks to Harold probably wants to know mm -hmm. uh, what do you how do you how do you locate a turkey? What do you do when you locate a turkey? What kind of calls do you like to use? And how do you, if one's hung up, what do you do? Mm -hmm. And that's good stuff. But I got a feeling there's a lot of there's a lot of information out there on that already that, mm -hmm. that he has probably given his opinion on. You could probably oh, get yeah. online and just type in Harold Knight turkey mm -hmm. hunting tips, and you could probably pull out all kinds of stuff. He'd probably love to talk about that end of it. Yeah, I'd rather talk about the the stories and, mm -hmm. and stuff like that and kind of get, get his perspective on that. 
it'd be interesting. Like I said, people can Google the rest of it. I might, I might give them 30 seconds at the end. If I, like I said, if I am lucky enough to sit down with them, guys, give me a 30 second rundown on how to have turkey in, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Just see what he can spill out there real quick. But, uh, no, I want to talk to him about some other stuff too. That'd be cool. You should come to that call and show if you're free. When is it? Uh, March 24th, I believe. I've seen uh, a lot of stuff lately on the internet. I, obviously, I reference the internet and social media a lot. I, that's mm-hmm. where I get a lot of ideas. And I, I, well, the internet and social media are really good because you can kind of see what's on people's mind. If you're a member of these groups like uh, Kentucky Whitetail Hunters or, or Public Land Hunters of Kentucky or mm-hmm. Fishing Kentucky Like Rivers and Streams, you can kind of see what people are talking about and what they're interested in. You can It, it might spur a thought in your mind that gives you something you want to talk about. But a lot of people have been talking lately about real foot, like crappie fishing at real foot. Apparently, it's getting big mm-hmm. you, you ever do that i've not been on real foot i've been around real foot but i've not been on it. i've never been there either of course but it's if i'm heading that usually if i'm down that part of the world i'm on kentucky lake yeah so my, lake. my my favorite fishing place outside of a good stream on i don't know you like kentucky lake it, no it's if, if i had a reservoir to go to every day to fish it'd be kentucky lake right. i went out there with jim doom and chad for a shoot one time and we were there fishing for maybe four hours and we caught 200 and something fish well, i mean it's incredible yeah we were fishing for uh Red ear and bluegill. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we just tore them up. And, uh, we went. Was it last year or the year before? Um, we did a bluegill shoot. I guess it was two years ago. Uh-huh. And uh, just hand size after hand size, yeah. and we caught a, we caught some um, some red ear. We got into one batch of them, uh-huh. and um, you know they're hard. Everybody's ooh red ear, red ear. Man, trying to find that nest yeah. in that giant expanse of lake. There's an art to it, and uh, it was hard for us. Know, we had to pick through the bluegill to find the red ear. Yeah. No doubt. We couldn't leave our we couldn't find the red ear because uh anytime we drop our bait in the water, the bluegill attack. Mm-hmm. Which is fine. I'm not complaining, but the it's same still time. fun to see that bobber go woo like yeah. and I've got a really, really ultra light that I mean it's yeah. it's a, a, a hand sized bluegill feels like a whale. And yeah. it's it's just a blast. And red ear can get pretty big. Some out there getting two pounds. Monsters. Yeah. Twelve inch plus. Yeah. That's a good size fillet of meat oh right my there. God. Yeah, we took we ate the ones we caught. We didn't eat two hundred of them, yeah. but we you know we 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 filled the live well up with bluegill until we said, all right, that's enough for the three of us to get a good meal out of it. And then, well, red ear out there are considered a sport fish. Yeah, well, there's some limits on them and everything like that. I can't remember exactly what they are, but Jim and Chad both knew. Yeah. I should probably look that up. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm not going back to Kentucky Lake anytime soon. I'm not lucky enough to be able to make that trip right now. If I get really lucky, I'll be going to Del Hollow sometime soon with Chad. And you will be lucky if you get to do that. Chad is the Mac Daddy on that. Oh, yeah. He I'm, knows Dale. I mean. He can fish Dale. <clears throat> Lord, I, he is the Mac Daddy. You know, I don't know. A lot of people that watch the TV show probably don't realize how good Chad is at mm-hmm. fishing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because a lot of times when we go on the shoots and Chad's with a guest, you know, he is trying to. Incorporate them. Well, he's yeah. no, he, well, he's trying to bring out information and help help teach yeah, people exactly. things. So he's kind of asking the questions, you know, to get that information out there from whoever the guest is. Mm-hmm. But I'm telling you, Chad knows how to fish. Like he's the best bass angler I've been in a boat with, and yeah. I've been in this business 18 years, and I've been with a lot of people in a lot of different situations on a lot of boats, and he's the yeah. best I've been in a boat with. Oh, he's taught me a lot. He's made me a better angler being around him. Yeah, he knows. He really knows. And Chad's a he's a good hunter. He does a mm-hmm. lot of he does a lot of hunting. He's hunted his whole life. But as far as fishing goes, mm-hmm. bass fishing, especially smallmouth bass fishing on Dale Hollow. Oh God! Yeah, get out of the way. You know what I mean? I feel bad for the fish sometimes because mm-hmm. I mean he's he used to fish tournaments. He obviously doesn't as the host of Kentucky Field because I, I, honestly, I, there's probably nothing against it. He just doesn't want to do it. Mm-hmm. But uh, I mean, he won some tournaments down there, and and he goes out there with anybody. He can he can fill the boat. Mm-hmm. As well, as he well. can. Yeah, I, I may have said this last time, but uh, I was on a 
shoot one time with him. Uh, it's 36 degrees. It's snow. We have snow in the background. And uh, Chad whips out a baitcaster and 12-pound fluoro and big, heavy stuff. And I was like, what is he doing? You know, mm-hmm. like, this is good. I mean, we have a we need to be throwing really light stuff, really super slow. And on really light line, we have terrible conditions, blah, blah, blah. I blanked, and he smacked. He caught four nice fish that day. A 12-pound fluorocarbon and a big, heavy jig in tough, tough conditions. That's I was crazy. like, well, I need to uh, learn yeah. myself. Well, that technique we were fishing when we went down there, and we, we caught 25 bass before lunch, literally caught three without starting the motor. Mm-hmm. The technique that we were using was one he showed us, and I haven't talked to a single guide on that lake who knows that technique. It's like something Chad made up. I think mm-hmm. he did make it up on accident one mm-hmm. day, and he fishes it. And I mean, all the professional guides down there, the people who take people out and fish for money, I mean, they don't know this technique, and mm-hmm. I feel like it just hammers them. Mm-hmm. So I mean, he knows some stuff. But he does. Yeah, you know, I got to pick his brain. Maybe I can use this uh, podcast. Tell him, hey, Chad, I'll talk to you up. Yeah, take me down there. Me too, Chad. Don't forget your old buddy Lee. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he'd love. <laughs> don't to. leave your old buddies in the background now. <laughs> now that you're famous and stuff, don't don't be dogging us. <laughs> now that you're famous, that's funny. <laughs> don't forget to put you there, baby. <laughs> oh man. All right, Lee. Well, let's let's close it out. We've been going for for quite a while here, but next week we're bringing Rachel Croom on, and we're going to talk to her. I'm saying this right now so i can rope her into it because mm-hmm. i she'd be great and she 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 loves podcasts she has a lot of interest in it but uh i have to commit her to it because she's a busy lady working with the foundation so i'm gonna mm-hmm. commit rachel to coming on next week and she's gonna talk about whatever we want to talk about with her she'll she, do a great job oh she she is great and she uh, she hunts a lot of public land she's a big time she knows boat. taylorsville really well yeah i don't know if she wanted to give away where she hunts at mm-hmm. but now it's, it's out cats out of the bag but she hunts public land she does a lot of turkey hunting she's big into bow fishing mm-hmm. um just fishing in general she works with the foundation she's got a lot of knowledge and i mean i'm telling you i had one of the most interesting conversations with her earlier today that i've had in a while about hunting and uh i'm I'm telling her the whole time i'm saying rachel you have got to come on the podcast you've got to come talk to us so next week we're going to have rachel on and uh and that'll be a good one and then soon after that i know you have a whole list of people you want to bring on i want to bring on gabe jenkins to talk about deer hunting and Mm -hmm. just kind of do an overall overview of that zach danks uh turkey biologist i want to bring him on and kind of preview the upcoming turkey season a lot of people are getting excited about turkey hunting so we can kind of get an idea from him you know what what's to be expected this year uh, as far as numbers go just based on what's happened over the last year or so and then laura palmer i want to bring her on talk coyotes and first school and stuff like that just because that's something i'm interested in so yeah but that'll, that'll be coming up soon and like i said rachel next week rachel you're roped into it you aren't getting out of it because i just said it and i'm putting this uh on the podcast and everybody's gonna hear it so all right all right, <laughs> all right. let's wrap it up well, we'll see you uh, next time. There you go. Like Lee said, 